Welcome to the People's History of Ideas podcast, episode five. In this episode, we'll be talking about some major trends during the three decades following the end of the Taiping Civil War. After the British and French occupied Beijing during the Second Opium War, and the forces led by Zhang Guofeng against the Taiping revolutionaries were greatly aided in their victory by British ships and guns, it had become clear to a new generation of Chinese reformers that it was going to be necessary for China to adopt at least some foreign technology if it wanted to ever be able to defend itself against the industrializing foreign powers which had caused so much trouble. As a result, this was a time period that saw an impressive amount of investment in new enterprises meant to modernize China's military and, to a lesser extent, the economy more broadly. But while the scale of the new investments were impressive, they took place within the context of an ongoing political struggle between the reformers, or we could call them modernizers, on the one hand, and conservative forces who strove to minimize change to the bare amount they considered necessary. In addition, this all took place within the context of the same corrupt system which had been creating so much misery for regular Chinese people already. And so endemic corruption and bureaucratic habits undermined modernizing efforts at every turn. Be that as it may, if China had been given an unlimited time frame free from foreign intervention, it likely would have managed to industrialize and modernize its economy without any more national calamities taking place. But the clock was ticking. Just as the European powers carved up Africa between themselves during this time period, the competition between the industrializing global powers in China and the adjacent region, including areas which were at least still nominally tributary possessions of China, was heating up. And if China couldn't fend off the challenge of the most aggressive foreign powers, it faced the prospect of being divided like Africa was. For the time period we're discussing in this episode, there's one particular historical figure who dominates China. And so we have to talk about her because she is simply the most powerful figure in China for most of the second half of the 19th century. I'm talking about Cixi, the Empress Dowager. Now, it's not the easiest name to pronounce for English speakers, so I probably am not saying it exactly right, and the spelling is a little counterintuitive. If you see it spelled somewhere, it'll be C-I-X-I. Basically, the Empress Dowager Cixi was the real ruler of China from 1862, when her six-year-old son, the Tongzhe Emperor ascended the throne until her death in 1908. She'd started out as a consort of the previous emperor, Shunfeng. Shunfeng had fled Beijing when it was occupied by the British and French during the Second Opium War, leaving his younger brother, Prince Gong, in charge of the capital. During the Taiping Rebellion, the Shunfeng Emperor had given himself up to dissipation and despair at the situation, and things only became worse after the British and French invaded. He retreated to the Chengde Mountain Resort a couple hundred kilometers northeast of Beijing, where he retreated from reality by watching operas, and died in 1861 at the age of 30, basically from overindulgence. Although despair at his inability to cope with leading China in its time of crisis must have contributed something to his death. 
Shen Feng had entrusted the care of Tongzhi to eight senior ministers, who were supposed to be the ruling power until Tongzhi came of age to rule. This didn't sit well with Prince Gong, who was much more reform-minded than the eight senior ministers. And it didn't sit well with Cixi either, who was ambitious to hold power herself. While Shen Feng was alive, Cixi had already started to help and advise the emperor in his work, and she didn't like the idea of being excluded from power now. So, while the eight regents were on their way back from Chengdu to Beijing, they were surprised in their beds and arrested, with three of them being executed. Prince Gong and Cixi now formed a ruling alliance, with the understanding that Prince Gong could pursue his reforms as long as he understood that Cixi was the highest authority. She didn't care about reform so much herself, but was willing to support the reformist faction led by Gong if those were the people she had to ally herself with in order to come to power. In order to ensure that Gong didn't turn on her, she made sure that conservatives at court also held influential positions so that she could always be the final arbiter in important conflicts between the two factions. When Tongzhi became 17 in 1873, he formally took over the throne, but Cixi remained a power behind the scenes, and Tongzhi died suddenly in 1875. Now Tongzhi's empress, who was pregnant, was supposed to rule in the name of her unborn child as Empress Dowager. But she died under suspicious circumstances, and Cixi, in order to remain Empress Dowager, had to adopt a new son on whose behalf she could rule. So she adopted the four-year-old Guangxu. This meant that Cixi didn't have to retire again until 1888, and by then she had been in power so long that she had no trouble remaining the power behind the throne while Guangxu ruled formally. This was shown in 1898 when Guangxu tried to exercise power during what are called the Hundred Days Reform, which we'll talk about later. At the end of 103 days of reform-minded independence, Cixi staged another coup and put Guangxu under house arrest. Cixi then ruled openly until 1908. When she knew she was going to die, she had Guangxu poisoned so that he died at age 37, the day before she died at age 72. Fundamentally, what Cixi cared about was remaining in power. This was much more important to her than any particular set of policies. Sushi's personal view on modernization and reform is captured well in this anecdote, which I'll read you. It's from a recent book by Zheng uh, Yongwen called Ten Lessons in Modern Chinese History. And it's a book I highly recommend to listeners who want to read further about the history we've been covering in this podcast. On a beautiful morning in December 1888, an excited eunuch rushed to the side of Empress Dowager Cixi to inform her that her birthday present had arrived. Cixi stepped out of her palace to see the special gift, a six-coach train made especially for her in Paris. The old Buddha, as she was reverently addressed, boarded the train and noted that the interior decoration was very exquisite, imperial standard indeed. She sat down and gave the order, and the train started moving on a track specially built for the occasion. She enjoyed the short ride, and above all the scenery she saw from the windows. She liked it so much that she ordered a line to be constructed between her residence in Jingqingjai, at the northern tip of today's Beihai, to her office at Ziguangge in Zhongnanhai, 
where today leaders of the communist regime live and work, all within the imperial compound, so that she could take the train to work every day. She liked everything about the journey except the sound of the engine and of the horn, and it was thought to disturb the feng shui of this royal land. She was so disturbed by the commotion that she stopped using the engine altogether and had workers pull the train instead. Though the journey took longer, it maintained peace and tranquility. Fundamentally, Sushi was out for herself. This is, uh, I'm not reading from the book anymore. So fundamentally, Sushi was out for herself. She wasn't opposed to modernization, but she also wasn't for it. Locomotives were great, but why make so much noise if you could just have peons pull the train for you instead? I think this really captures something about the fitful nature of reform and modernization that took place under her rule. And of course, because she relied on keeping the conservatives and reformers in line by favoring one side and then the other, it meant that there could not be any sort of really thoroughgoing modernization during her long reign. So, going back to China in the wake of the Second Opium War and at the end of the Taiping Civil War. China had just experienced a series of catastrophes. Since the defeat by the British in the First Opium War back in 1842, China had a series of humiliating treaties forced upon it, giving all kinds of concessions to foreign powers, allowing the trade in opium into the country, losing territory to Russia, and now being forced to deal with foreign powers not according to long-standing traditions which place China at the center of the civilized world, but according to the rules set by the European-centered imperial system of the industrializing 19th century. I received a question from a listener that's relevant here, so let me address that question as we move on. The question was, how exactly could the comparatively small military expeditions which the British and French sent to China defeat the Chinese military on its home ground? Why couldn't the Europeans just be overwhelmed by superior numbers of Chinese people when they invaded China? This is a really important question, so let me clarify this if I can. The first major thing the Europeans had going for them was their firepower. The artillery that they had was a huge advantage. So for example, during the first Opium War, the British could pull up in their ships off the coast of China and shell a city while staying out of range of any damaging fire from the Chinese. They could essentially just kill large numbers of people, make buildings catch on fire, and wipe out coastal defenses from a position of total safety. Similarly, when the Taiping forces advanced on Shanghai and the French fired on them with their artillery, they were able to kill large numbers of Taiping without the Taiping ever being able to get close enough to do any damage to the European or Qing forces defending the city. But the guns that their soldiers carried were also much better than the guns that the, that the Chinese soldiers had. So with the guns as well, the Europeans could kill large numbers of Chinese soldiers and civilians from a much greater distance and with greater accuracy than the Chinese could, which meant that they could decimate Chinese forces from a distance well before the European forces were really threatened in return. When this was combined with disciplined military formations, it allowed the British and French to do things like advance inland from Tianjin to Beijing in the Second Opium War, basically with impunity. A good example of this was the Battle of Zhangzhouan, which took place just east of Beijing in 1860, right before the British and French occupied Beijing in the Second Opium War. 
Here's an account of that battle in which about 60,000 Qing troops tried to defend Beijing against the much smaller British and French force. The British and French had sent about 24,000 troops to China, and only a portion of that was used to attack and occupy Beijing. This uh, um, account is from the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt, which is a great book to read if you want to learn a lot more about the Second Opium War and the Taiping Civil War. Just a couple of names that are going to be used in this excerpt here is uh, Sengulin Qin, who was a Mongol general for the commanding Mongolian cavalry for the Qing forces, and the town of Tongzhou, which is uh, just to the east of Beijing. So, here we go. The small allied force fought its way forward, finally meeting head-on with the bulk of Sengalin Qin's army just outside Tongzhou on September 21st. Wildly superior numbers, the swift Mongolian cavalry charged in a broad wave at the left flank of the approaching allied force, which marched in three columns, cavalry on the left, artillery in the center, infantry on the right. The British and French cavalry quickly split and pulled aside as their artillery in the center wheeled their guns around to bring them to bear on the charging Mongol horsemen. Then the Armstrong guns did their work, pouring salvo after salvo deep into the ranks of the oncoming imperial cavalry with shuddering effect. The Mongol horsemen pulled up in confusion, at which point the British cavalry charged full force into their midsection, breaking through the imperial lines and scattering them into chaotic retreat. Then came the real slaughter. Quote, Our artillery opened fire upon the retreating forces with good effect, unquote, wrote a phlegmatic British officer. Quote, Firing slowly, every Armstrong shell bursting amongst them and bringing down the enemy in clubs. End quote. As one rueful Chinese account described the route that day, quote, Our cavalry went out in front, but they were Mongolian horsemen who had never seen battle before. As soon as they heard the sounds of the foreign cannons, they turned back. The foot soldiers behind them scattered ranks, and then everyone trampled one another. End quote. By the end of the day, the imperial army was broken, and its remnants retreated to the vicinity of Beijing. The Allied soldiers occupied Tongzhou and settled in to wait patiently for the arrival of their reinforcements from Tianjin, along with the supplies, ammunition, and heavy siege guns they would need before advancing on the capital itself. In addition to the overwhelming defeat that was suffered in the Second Opium War, the generals who had fought the Taiping, Zheng Guofun and his protege, Li Hongzhong, who of course had actually been allies of the British in fighting the Taiping right after the Second Opium War, were very impressed by all the artillery and steamships which they saw used firsthand. And they saw the first order of business as being developing China's capacity to make these sorts of weapons. So, in light of the clear advantages of British and French military technology, following Prince Gong and Empress Dowager Sishi's coup, a period of reform was inaugurated, which was known as the Tongzhe Restoration, named after the Tongzhe Emperor, Cixi's six-year-old son who was the new emperor. This new reform movement was also called the Self-Strengthening Movement, and the idea was to start building up China's military capacity. With this in mind, a major project was launched to build arms factories to provide modern weapons directly to the new armed forces led by Zheng Guofun and Li Hongzhang, which had defeated the Taiping. 
and a naval shipyard and college were set up on the coast in Fujian province called the Fujian Naval Affairs Bureau. A couple related reforms were the establishment of a foreign affairs department, which was called the Zongle Yamen, before foreign affairs had been managed according to rights in which foreigners implicitly recognized Chinese superiority. Now that China was being forced to play by the rules set up by the European powers, a whole new diplomatic apparatus needed to be established. Of course, this also meant that language training was necessary, and so the Beijing Translation College was set up. There was a phrase which guided these reform efforts. It was Chinese body, Western use. The idea was that you could adopt some of the obviously useful or necessary practices from the West, but that you wanted to do it in a way which preserved something essential about Chinese civilization. The debate among the elite then became how much reform would compromise something essential about Chineseness. The most conservative members of the court only wanted to adopt military technology and do what was needed to keep foreigners at bay, while reformers recognized that military modernization could not occur in a vacuum and that other social changes would be necessary in order to support a modern military force. And so they advocated further reforms, such as creating industrial economic enterprises or running train lines across the country. Career advancement and social prestige were still attached to becoming an official, which meant studying for exams based on the old classics and the debates which revolved around interpreting the classics. This was considered the essence of Chinese civilization, but the practical value was very limited apart from the need to learn this stuff in order to advance through the ranks of officialdom. The experience of Beijing Translation College is instructive. After a few years, in addition to language instruction, the college also offered courses in subjects that were considered new learning or Western learning, such as math, astronomy, geography, chemistry, navigation, law, and economics. Initially, the college was only open to Manchus, and the only students were either children from Manchu families who had nothing else to do and were unprepared for the learning, or older officials who had been ordered to improve their skills. People looking to climb the ladder of officialdom had no need for this knowledge. So eventually, all restrictions had to be lifted on who could enter the school so that it would attract people who were not interested in climbing the ranks of officialdom. The ultimate effect, naturally, was that it attracted very reform-minded people. And later, after it changed its name to Beijing University, it was the site of student radicalism, the birthplace of Chinese communism, and where Mao Zedong worked as a librarian while becoming a Marxist. Quite the unintended consequence for a school founded by Prince Gong in conjunction with Protestant missionaries working as language teachers. But it can't be emphasized enough that the movement toward modern industrial society was a very halting one. Both because of the conflicts between reformers and conservatives in the Qing court, and also because of the inherent tension of the fact that foreigners, whose intentions were always with good reason looked on with suspicion, were the initial bearers of the knowledge, and sometimes the capital, needed for modernization. The story of Shanghai's first railroad is a good illustration. In 1876, a British firm built a railroad from one part of Shanghai to another, but they did it without getting permission from the government. In 1877, the Qing court bought the railroad and had it dismantled. 
On the one hand, this reflected the opposition of conservatives at court who didn't want any railroads built at all because they were strange and they disrupted the feng shui of the land, the geomantic spirits and all that. And anyways, no one in China had ever needed these things before. Why would they need them now? But there were other officials at court who also supported buying the railroad and dismantling it, even though they were open to the idea of railroad construction in general. For them, the principle of the violation of Qing sovereignty was the main issue. And because the British firm, which were, after all, the old opium barons Jardine, Matheson and company, built the railroad without permission, the railroad needed to be dismantled. The remarkable thing from this perspective is that China actually had to buy the railroad in order to dismantle it. After all, building a railroad across a city is a pretty big thing to do without permission. The eventual, albeit slow, success of the Beijing Translation College in contributing to China's modernization points to the fact that even though the path to regular, normy career success in late 19th century China lay with climbing the ranks of officialdom, which meant studying for and taking higher and higher level exams on the Confucian classics, there were, of course, other people who took other life paths. In particular, there were Chinese people who left China because of the crisis there in order to find opportunity elsewhere. Officially, the Qing Empire restricted who could travel from China. But in reality, this was very difficult to enforce, especially after the Opium War. If you were pushed out of your home because of all the fighting happening with the Taiping Rebellion, why not go to California, where the gold rush had just started a year, few years before? There were long-standing Chinese communities outside China in Southeast Asia, but now you started to see Chinese people migrating to the Americas, Australia, and Europe. Some of this was voluntary migration, but also some of it was coerced migration with the so-called coolie trade where Europeans trafficked in Chinese laborers who had been tricked, kidnapped, or coerced in some other way into migrating to places like Trinidad in the Caribbean or Cuba to do agricultural work that had been done by slaves until the recent abolition of slavery. For some families, especially those with overseas connections, a Western education began to seem more desirable, more practical, and more attainable. The future nationalist leader, Sun Yat-sen, left his hometown in Guangdong province, just north of Macau, to go to Hawaii in 1879 when he was 13. His older brother had already been working there, and Sun went there to get a Western education. He then returned to Hong Kong for university to study Western medicine. This was something that came to characterize radical circles in general. Even though Sun Yat-sen became a nationalist leader, he was very much a proponent of Western-style education and using science and industry to make China strong. And he wasn't so into the old Confucian education and values. We'll be talking more about Sun in a future podcast. Don't worry, this isn't all we're going to have to say about him. Chinese people working abroad faced a lot of discrimination and racial oppression, even if they weren't coerced into coolie labor. This caused a lot of resentment. And a lot of it was particularly targeted at the Qing Empire. There were a lot of Chinese people abroad who blamed the weak Qing government for their situation. And so they banded together into fraternal societies in order to protect themselves and in order to help each other out in their new countries. 
Some of the societies also ended up supporting attempts at change back home in China, like with providing funding for armed nationalist uprisings that would start to happen in 1895 when Sun Yat-sen's revived China society launched its first of many attempts at revolution. But that, of course, brings us just up past what we're covering in this episode. So, just to conclude, the three decades after the Taiping Revolution saw a lot of change. New modernization projects, more Chinese going overseas, the expansion of the study of subjects necessary for industrialization and competing in the 19th century industrial world. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a clock was ticking, and soon some very bad people were going to test just how far China had gotten in strengthening itself. That's coming up in an upcoming episode.